You're listening to Episode 5 of the Child Life On Call Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call Podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick, but for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries, the list goes on, and then you still may not have all of the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. You know, to at least not feel alone. Is that, that I think that was important. Just, you know, going through the whole hormonal change and going through all the situation, you feel alone. Even though my husband was the most supportive person I ever met. But, you know, at the same time, it just, it was nice to, well, it would have been nice to be able to talk to another mom that was going through a similar situation. I hope my situation can help somebody. That was Karen, and we will hear more from her about her daughter's NICU stay in a minute. I really hope you've been enjoying this podcast so far, and I'd really like to thank everyone who has left a review on iTunes. It really helps other parents and listeners find this podcast. Make sure you stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear a preview for next week. Today, we will hear from Karen, a mother of two beautiful children. Originally from El Salvador, Karen now lives in Austin, Texas, and will be talking with us about the birth of her second child, her daughter, and an unexpected NICU stay. Karen will walk us through the feelings and emotions associated with her unplanned and emergent C-section due to undetected gestational diabetes, and the subsequent hospital stay that ensued for both her and her newborn daughter. Karen starts off by telling us about what happened during the last few days of her pregnancy. I was 39 and a half weeks pregnant, and we, at the last family outing as a family of three, we decided to go to a pumpkin patch, and during the whole day that we were there, I didn't feel my daughter moving at all, and so I decided to wait it out a little bit, then the next morning, I decided to call the doctor just because I started freaking out a little bit. And they told me to come in and get a check. Um, while at the hospital, they had an observation for three hours, and my daughter wasn't moving at all. Wasn't responding to any of the uh, sugar that they were pumping in my veins to try to get her to move. Um, I was slightly dehydrated for me outside the day before, and um, they did a sonogram, and she wasn't responding to any of it, but her heartbeat was there, so it wasn't... She was in distress, but we didn't know how much distress she was in. Um, so the doctor decided that best course of action was to get an emergency C-section, which, for starters, that's not what I wanted to do. Um, but at the, but in deep down, I knew that you know I just wanted to get my daughter out and just for her to be healthy and just however rad that meant. Um, 
you know, that's what it had to be. Like most medical emergencies, things rarely go how we'd like them to. Because Karen had another young child at home, she was alone in the hospital when she found out the news that she would need an emergent C-section. Well, my husband was at home because I called in the morning and my son was still sleeping and I told him, I went and woke him up and I said, hey, I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to get this checked out. Um, and previous to that, I was having low problems with low immunic fluid, which I didn't know that was a thing until I got pregnant with my daughter. Um, and so they were monitoring that, and that's another reason why I called, and, and I said, you know, I need to make sure that she has enough immunic fluid and, you know, that she's okay. And so when I went and, wake him, and woke him up, I said, hey, I'm just going to get the levels checked. Um, I should be back by lunch. I told him this, <laughs> should be back by lunch. And he said, okay, that's fine, you know, just keep me posted. So every 30 minutes he just we started to text or, you know, phone calls and stuff. And until finally the doctor said, no, we need to get her out as soon as possible. You need, your husband needs to make it here within the next hour. So he drove to the hospital, but because we didn't know we were going to ha- end up having a C-section that day, my son came along with us. And so, because what do you do? Thankfully, it was on a Sunday, so my mom was able to pick him up. But what do you do? Like, I, we couldn't leave my son behind. Obviously, he wanted to be there for the birth of his daughter. Um, I wanted him to be there for emotional support because I was a mess. He's the common collected one, so he kind of kept me down a little bit. Um, and just, you know, trying to focus on the facts that, you know, yes, this is not what you wanted because it's, cause they talked about induction. Um, but we couldn't do that because she was too weak. So with the news that Karen would have to move forward with an emergency C-section, she talks about the trust she had in her doctor and her medical team at this point. Thankfully, i kind of stubborn. I was just like, you know, I'm just going to follow whatever she's doing. This is not what I wanted because I was so adamant that the last thing that I wanted was a C-section, which looking back, that's like the worst, like that's the stupidest thing that I could focus in on, but I think my brain just try to focus on something that couldn't help, just to try to track something that I could control because everything else was out of my hands. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, you had been 39 and a half weeks thinking that you were going to have something one way and now all of a sudden it's scary and it's changing. So I think that makes a lot of sense. It makes complete sense to me that Karen was clinging on to being adamantly against a C-section. She had had a successful vaginal delivery with her first child, so she tells me that she had been picturing a similar experience with her daughter. Next, Karen takes us through what those first few moments were like after her daughter was born. So we had the C-section, and she kind of cried. And then the doctor, I remember the doctor saying, that's a good sign. And so, but she went automatically to the other doctors. I didn't get to see her at all. She was born with a lot of hair, and I just remember the doctor saying, like, she has a full set of hair. Like, I just remember everybody commenting about that. And so my husband went and took a picture. She brought the picture to me. And then that's when the situation got a little scary because she wasn't breathing on her own. Um, And that's when they discovered that, when they got her out, they discovered that she had meconium. She had poop inside, and it was already on her lungs. So they were trying to get all of that out. Um, and later on, the doctor said that she had it for a while because it was all over her skin and it was under her nails. And so they said, we're going to have to put her in uh, NICU and just try to stabilize her breathing and see what happens. 
they decided to run other tests, and that's when they realized her glucose levels were low, very low, because her insulin levels were super high. And so every time that they shot her with uh, glucose to try to stabilize it, it just immediately burned off. The one thing that I wanted, it was I wanted to hold my baby. I just wanted to see my baby because at this point I haven't seen her. And, um, yeah, it was, was, it was a little terrifying at one point just because, again, I, you know, what if something happened and I never got to hold my baby? That was my thought. Like, I just want to hold her. So she was born around 1 o'clock um, by Four o'clock, which is this is kind of kind of dumb because Daniel Tiger was supposed to be here in Austin, and so after everybody was like, "Okay, she's okay, she's fine," my son was obsessed with Daniel Tiger. I got tickets, so I was like, "Somebody needs to take my son to go see Daniel Tiger." And so my my husband was like, "Okay, she's normal, she's still alive. I am gonna go take him." So then the doctor, my husband left ten minutes after he left. Pediatrician came in and he's like, "Where is your husband?" Like he went home with my son. He's like, "No, he needs to come here." And I said, "Why?" He's like, "Well, we we'll transfer your daughter to Dell Children's Hospital, which is the uh, pediatric hospital in Austin." She's like, "We can't stabilize her glucose. She needs higher levels that we can provide in here." So she had to be transferred. And that's when I started to a little more because the, the doctors were like, "Oh, my nurse was like, you know, once you." you can walk or once you feel better, we can put you in a wheelchair and you can go see your daughter. Obviously, with her being transferred, that wasn't the case. She was transferred on her own, her own vehicle. And I stayed at the hospital that I gave birth because I, I was still, because it was the same day that she was born. So not only I didn't get to hold her, she wasn't even going to be at the same hospital I was. Once her daughter arrived at the children's hospital, Karen said she felt like it was one thing after the other. Doctors realized that not only were they finding it difficult to stabilize her glucose levels, but they found that her heart was enlarged, there was a hemorrhage in her brain, and her blood platelets were very low. Karen now talks about the process of trying to figure out why all of this was happening. And we couldn't figure out why, because this whole time, the doctor said I was fine, no complications, no high blood pressure, no diabetes. I mean, I had a pretty relatively healthy pregnancy. And so we just couldn't figure out what the problem was. And one of the things that I said, it was because my blood type and her blood type were not compatible. Um, just, I guess, some blood got transferred during the birthing process. And so her body was thinking that it was an infection, so it was trying to fight it out. And on top of all of that, 24 hours after she was born, she was jaundiced, which, you know, is pretty common, except that her levels were at 17, when normally they're supposed to be around, like, I don't know, like 14, 15, they said, so they were super high. It wouldn't budge. Like, she was under the light for three days, and it went down to, like, I think 12 at one point, and then once they got it out of the light, it went back up. Meanwhile, I was still in my hospital, just trying to pump as much as I could so she can have breast milk and or colostrum, whatever was coming out. And um, my husband was there. My husband was also at home taking care of our three-year-old son. So how were you communicating with the medical team at um, the NICU hospital then? Were you talking to them over the phone, or how would you get updates since you weren't in the same hospital? My husband was the middleman for us. 
So that helped a little bit. And then every morning when I woke up, I called and just kind of check up on the status of my daughter. Because at the beginning, they said it was going to be a couple of days. And like I said, she ended up being there for a week. Later on, they said that um, a lot of the issues that she was having, it was because I had additional diabetes that didn't get diagnosed. But I passed my test and my OB always tested for glucose on my uh, urine every checkup and everything was normal. That's incredibly scary. I wonder how often that happens. One of the doctors at Anikia, they were saying that, like, these tests are not really specific. So they just give you a range of, like, if you score, like, 50 to 100, I don't know the exact numbers, but if you, get, if you score within these lines, you are okay. So, but the problem is that a lot of the uh, people like me that apparently have a high tolerance for sugar that I didn't realize my body could process it fine. But for my daughter, the same level of sugar was kind of, it was bad for her. And that's why her insulin levels were super out of whack. So how long did it have to take for her to stabilize that? Did, by the time she left the NICU, was all that back to normal as well? Uh, the glucose, yes. Uh, the breathing, yes. Um, the heart situation, no. Because they just wanted to make sure that you know, as as the baby got bigger, that the heart didn't get enlarged and just kind of because she wasn't being exposed to the sugar on my on my on my blood, her heart was supposed to come back to normal within a couple of months. So we weren't super worried about that, but the brain bleeding. They they did a CT scan just to make sure there wasn't bleeding because of the blade uh, issues, uh, and they discovered a little dot on the brain scan that they said it could be. A hemorrhage could be nothing. We're just going to keep looking at it. And so, um, because the brains are so small, and I guess they cannot repair themselves without like major issues. So, they were looking at that situation or monitoring that situation just to make sure they didn't get worse. So, what kind of prognosis did the medical team give you about all this stuff with the heart and with the brain? Were they just said it was a wait and see type situation or were they giving you good or bad news about how things may go? Um, It was just a wait and see, mostly just because, again, she represented to the T a baby being from a diabetic, born from a diabetic mother. That's what they kept telling me and and I was getting frustrated because of I showed them my test, like I passed, but something between, and I took my test late too, <laughs> which that was interesting, but between the taking the test and giving birth, somehow my body decided to, you know, act in, I don't know, I, so between then and, and in the 10 week period that I had the test and the birth, something gave me gestational diabetes apparently, even though I went to take the test later and it came back normal. When did you finally get to hold her and see her? Was that um, while she was in the NICU or after you had gotten discharged from the hospital? I had to get discharged from the hospital. Um, I was C-sections to normally keep you 72 hours. They kept me 48 just because I kept nagging them. I was like, I I just want to go and be with my daughter Um, because I just didn't, you know, again, like my husband was at home trying to hold the front at home and trying to keep normal life for my son, which 
you know, he didn't understand why mom wasn't home or baby because he was so excited. I mean, he, he's, he was so excited to meet his little sister. And, you know, all of a sudden he's like, oh, they're not here. What happened? And so um, she spent the first night by herself. And then the second night, no, she spent two nights by herself because, again, my husband couldn't spend the night there. By the third night, I was already with her. And I was like, I don't care. I will sleep on the couch. I, I will sleep on a chair. I just want to be next to her. I'm sure. Well, what kinds of what kinds of things were you able to do in the hospital while she was in the NICU that made you feel connected to her? Was there any kind of bonding time? Could you do skin to skin or breastfeed or anything like that? No, I couldn't do any of that because she was, because they wanted to make sure, well, a couple issues. They wanted to make sure she was getting enough food. And so I couldn't breastfeed her because it's kind of hard to tell how much she was eating. And on top of that, because she was still on oxygen, um, she couldn't swallow. So she couldn't, they had to to feed her for a while. Um, We couldn't do skin to skin or anything like that because she was under the lights because of the jaundice. So it was like, it was the biggest piece because I was there, I was in the same room, but I couldn't touch her. And when she got transferred to the hospital and the ambulance, I just, I was just able to hold her hand because she was already on the incubator and... Oh my gosh. Well, was there any um, good friends or family that reached out to you and were able to do something that could kind of help you cope with what was, what was going on? Or what would you recommend to friends or families who have a loved one who is going through something similar? What would you tell them to do? What's helpful? Just be there for them. I mean, you know, in my situation, I know what was helpful. It was for somebody to go pick up my son from daycare, you know, just to go be with them. So, you know, so my husband and I could focus on our daughter. Or at least, like, my husband can come see me at the hospital. You know, situations like that where you don't really think about it, what's helpful. I mean, and the situation is, unfortunately, there's not a lot of support for mothers on the NICU. I mean, the hospital was great. The staff was great in the sense that, you know, I was feeling supported by them. But at the same time, like, it was, it was scary because you don't know how long you're going to be there. You don't know how long your baby's going to be there. And the only thing that your family wants to do is be able to see the baby and hold her. But at the same time, you're like, you know, guys, I'm sorry you can because she's still under lights or, you know, she has a feeding tube. We can do that. You know, it was just, it was bad. It's a lot for families to understand too, because again, it's not, it's not really a, a common situation or it doesn't happen as much as we think. How is she now? What's her status? Checking on her heart, checking on her brain. How is she now? So every issue that she had when she was born so far, it's clear. Thank God. But we are, because of the brain thing, we, you know, we're hoping that there's not repercussions later on. But um, I was actually contacted by therapists, an occupational therapists that apparently Dell gave it a uh, recommendation and so if I ever needed help with that, I mean, we still don't know. Hopefully it's nothing, but we still don't know what kind of status her, I mean, her brain, like the, the shell of the brain is fine, but, you know, we're hoping that she doesn't have any developmental issues or anything like that. I mean, so far she seems great. That's good. That's good. And so she's like hitting, are you crazy about making sure she's hitting milestones and eating and all that kind of stuff? I feel like I would just be way overprotective. Yes. 
I try not to drive myself crazy, but yes. When I had my son, I would sit on the couch for 40 minutes because the only thing that he wanted to be was to touch to me and for 40 minutes and then not eat for an hour and then do it all over again. With her, she eats for five, 10 minutes. And it, it, so the, she's more efficient about emptying, you know, the breast and about eating. So and it, it, within me, I was like, oh, my gosh, she's not eating enough. What is wrong? She's okay. She's, she's fine. It was worse the first couple of months, but, you know, it kind of, I had to tell, tell myself, I, I can't, I can't make myself go there. Just because my daughter needs a healthy mom. What do you do to help keep yourself healthy and kind of in a good space where you can cope and handle with everything? Talk to my husband a lot. Because the situation was, again, so strange. You don't think that was hap- that will happen to us. As, as stupid as it sounds, I was like, you know, we're healthy. We had a son, and my son's birth was textbook. Like, I went into labor by myself. You know, I didn't have to get induced. It was Every like I said, everything went textbook. It couldn't gone any better than it did. And then with her, everything was completely opposite. And it just, you know, it was one of those that we just didn't know how to react and what to do. And you know, you didn't want to feel bad or sad, but you couldn't help it. And hormones after giving birth were not helping. I had a great, great, great friend coming uh, on Sunday. She was born on a Sunday. Sunday the night and stayed with me for hours. She didn't leave the hospital room until she was, it was two in the morning. Just kind of talking and just kind of letting me say what I needed. So it was, I mean, it, it's one of those things that when you're in the situation, you don't know, you know you need help, but you don't know what kind of help you need. Right. That's a really good way to put it. But it sounds like your friend just even being there and listening and just letting you vent and talk and cry is probably a really good thing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. I didn't realize how much I needed that. I mean, because I was be strong for my husband and for my son and obviously for her. But at the same time, there was so much that I, that, you know, I couldn't do without, like, I would just remember looking at something and just bursting crying and just, it was nothing in specific. I think I was just watching TV, watching, watching trashy reality TV, because, again, I just needed the distraction, and, yeah, and it was bad. I feel like a lot of us can relate to what Karen is saying about what she went through. At times, zoning out to TV or books or podcasts or whatever it is, it can be a reprieve from tough situations. Karen recommends reaching out to your hospital's NICU mother support group because there probably is one that exists even if you don't know about it. And also, Karen recommends looking for a Ronald McDonald house, which may be able to help provide you with a bed to sleep in and food to eat while your child is in the hospital. Despite all the tough experiences that Karen and her family went through, she leaves us with this. I was at the beginning was terrifying, but now it's, she's, she's just the most calm and pretty baby. I don't know. She makes me want to have another baby, and I, I said I didn't want to have any more. There is nothing more powerful in my eyes than the good feelings that a precious baby can bring you. If you would like to connect with Karen, I will link to her email and Facebook page on the show notes page. I would like to take a moment to say a special thank you to Karen for sharing her story with us today. 
And another big thank you to Laura Moresman Photography for the beautiful photos of Karen and her family. Laura, you are so talented and so giving, and we are so grateful that you bless this world with such beautiful memories for our families. Go follow Laura Moresman Photography and book her now. If you don't already, you can follow along with our episodes through Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Please leave comments and remember that all the moms who have shared their story on this podcast are more than willing to connect with anyone going through similar experiences. Thank you so much for listening to Child Life on Call. I'll leave you with a sneak peek into next week's episode. And he says the words. He said, yes, it was an abnormal EEG. It says here the diagnosis um, is definitely a neurological disorder, most likely Rolandic epilepsy. And I just sit there. And I have no idea what that means or what he's really just said to me. But the word abnormal stuck out. And then disorder. Those are the two words that stuck with me. And I just sat there. I felt like I had been punched in the gut. That's the only way I can describe it. Like the wind had just been completely knocked out of me. And in fact, just thinking about it and talking about it right now, I get, I get tears in my eyes and I start to well up. And it's been now many, many years, you know, since our diagnosis. That was Trisha, and you'll definitely want to make sure you are subscribed and ready to hear her story. After years of searching for a diagnosis for a daughter with sleep and sensory issues, Trisha went to no end to find a doctor who would finally give her answers. You can hear more next Monday morning. See you next week.